need if you're not hearing the voice of God. Together, there is nothing that we can't do. I really believe that God has given us a sacred trust. Kensington, Birmingham. My name is Jenny Warrens. I'm on the team here, and we are thrilled to have you with us this morning. Uh, if, if there's anyone out there who is maybe here for the first time or visiting, um, a special welcome to you. We're so glad that you chose to join us this morning. Uh, in fact, we've got a team, uh, a table out in the lobby called Starting Point, and if you have questions about Kensington or faith or God, uh, our life, our team there would love to meet you, and we actually have a special gift for you just for joining us today. So again, that's in the lobby after the service. Uh, if you're here visiting. Um, I'm going to tell you just a few things that are happening around Kensington right now. Um, the first is leadership gathering. So the video that you just saw had highlights from some of the, the past events. And this is an event that we hold two times a year um, designed to refresh and refuel our leaders. And so this coming Friday night, January 19th, and the morning, uh, Saturday morning, the 20th, we'll be gathering at the Troy campus um, for an event that's uh, really designed to address our spiritual, emotional, and relational well-being. So whether you serve on a Sunday morning team here or if you lead a group during the week, uh, this event is for you. And it's designed to help you grow personally, but also to help you grow in the area of ministry where you serve. So I would love if you join us. We have almost 800 people already registered. It's going to be an awesome event. Um, and again, it's at Troy Campus. And you can still register at kensingtonchurch.org slash lead. Um, also, in the, the realm of leadership development, you may not know that Kensington offers a 10-month internship program. So there are part-time and full-time options uh, designed to help people who are maybe young adults or career changers or maybe looking to start into ministry. And uh, there's mentorship from our staff, uh, incredible teaching, but really the hands-on experience of learning what it looks like to be in vocational ministry. And the applications for our 2018-2019 season are open online already at kensingtonchurch.org slash interns. So if you or maybe someone you know um, might be a good fit for something like that, please uh, go ahead and send them there. Uh, other things that are happening around, this is one of my favorites. So at Kensington, we really believe in moving out. We want to make a difference in our local community. And so coming up starting uh, next Sunday, January 21st through February 4th, we're partnering with Genesis Church in Royal Oak and Cana Church uh, from Berkeley in uh, putting on a warming center for people who don't have a warm home this winter. And 
I mean, I'm feeling just from walking in from the parking lot, I'm freezing. And so this is an incredible opportunity that we have to create a place um, for people who don't have one. And so there are great ways to serve and ways to include your kids. If you're a mom or a dad and you've got want to involve your kids, take them shopping with you to pick up some warm mittens or socks. That's what I did with my girls. Uh, If you're part of a small group, you could prepare lunch or prepare a dinner, serve it together. Um, But our biggest need actually right now is for the overnight shifts. And so um, we're required to have people on site. So there are two shifts, one from 7 p.m. to 1 or 2 a.m. And then from 1 or 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. And this is not for everybody, and I know that. But if you're someone who's like, you know what? I could do that. I would encourage you to talk to the team out in the lobby after the service. Um, That's our biggest need uh, coming up to start next Sunday. So please consider it. Uh, Finally, I want to talk about groups. Um, Small groups are are pivotal in our relationships with Christ. And for me as a a freshman at Michigan State University, a small group is what transformed my idea about who God is and his desire for for me to experience life in community. And so um, I'm going to invite my friend Rick to come on up and join me here to chat with me just a minute about groups. Um, Want to give him a round of applause? Yeah, it's Rick. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah. So Rick's um, for the last twenty years, you said, uh, has been a part of Kensington's men's ministry called Dig, uh, digging into God. And this is uh, it's a Bible study that happens on a weekly basis. Yep. And um, I'm so thankful that you're here to share a little bit about it, so people can hear from somebody who's not just you know up here on stage. Yep. So um, Rick, can you maybe just share with them what has your experience been like? What do you what do you enjoy the most about your time? Well, I'm a big believer that. Uh learning comes by participation. Participation is a key to learning. So not sitting back having a lecture, but we just have a wonderful group of guys. I see a lot of them here this morning. We got 18 to 28 guys. Thanks guys. They show up at six 30. So they all want to be there. You, you got to want to be there. Sometimes I don't want to be there. Like, oh, I guess I got to go, but, um, we open the word of God and we apply it to our lives. And it's always just surprising how much we get out of it. It just keeps them coming back. The word of God is amazing. And, um, it's just applied to our business, sales, all kinds of stuff that guys talk about. Yeah. That's awesome. I was going to ask you, you know, there are probably many who have not been a part of a small group before. And, and that's one of the best things about it is the practical application yeah. that comes from just opening the word of God and how you can apply it to life. Yeah. So how has, um, how has being part of a small group impacted you personally? I happen to have four years of Bible college and three years of master's degree in the Bible theology and all that kind of stuff, Hebrew, Greek, all that stuff. And I just am really moved as I think about my years. I try to reflect and I've grown more this year in my relationship with Jesus Christ than I have in all the seven years of heavy schooling. We just get together and and discuss this. It's one thing to study the Bible for yourself. It's another one to be with a group of guys who are really sharp and, and just Iron sharpening iron. It's, it's really cool. So it's at 630. I think we forgot to mention that. Outside. Yeah. 630 at 630 Harmon Street. So it's easy to GPS. 630 <laughs> Harmon Street. You're all welcome. I think we might get enough from this. We'll have to start another group. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, cool. Rick. Mm-hmm. I super appreciate it. Yes, you can give him a round of applause. It's awesome. Um, this is why we do groups. As you heard Rick mentioned, he's experienced more life change in the last year being in a group of guys and doing this together than he did with a formal, a formal training. So thank you, Rick, for sharing. If you're interested to know more about what kind of groups we have at Kensington, men's, women's, families, couples, we have groups that are focused on parenting, groups that are focused on finances, um, groups uh, that are exploring Christianity and just curious. And so if you have any questions or any nudging toward maybe stepping into a group for this winter and early spring season, uh, we'll be out in the lobby afterward. And I would absolutely love to talk with you about um, a a great 
benefit. So uh, we're going to get started this morning. Can I invite you to just to stand up and greet those around you? Maybe meet someone new this morning. We're so happy to have you with us. I see some of my favorite people in the world here. Thank, great to see you. Uh, I was going to greet you in the lobby, but it was too cold. So I went back in the green room and had a cup of coffee instead. Uh, so my love was tested and failed. Anyway, um, we're in the midst of a really powerful series. And today we're taking another step in this journey towards uh, what we're really hoping to look back at in the month of January is things really changing for people. I noticed it on our staff this week that New Year's resolutions are being carried out. People are really saying, I want to live differently. I want to live less addicted, less controlled by these certain things in my life. And so today we're looking at the, the whole issue of substances. We obviously are in a moment in time where we're actually terrified. We're terrified of the opioid crisis and the power that it's exerting on people and on our children and on whole sections of the country and the world. We also are going to talk specifically about alcohol, which is kind of a, kind of a baseline of, uh, of history that so much of us have a history with it. And so I love what the team decided to do for this week. They decided to take the song Sober that was done by Pink and cut it down so that it's not about the show, that it's really kind of about experiencing the words of the song. And wow, what, what a song, what lyrics that are part of this. And so I want you to just listen carefully. I want you to, to live in this. And I want, to, I want you to think about this question. What does it take for a person to feel comfortable or feel free from anxiety? Do you need uh, to, to have a, a couple of drinks? Do you need to have a pill? Is there a you need a cheeseburger. I mean, there's a lot of things that control us. That's how I medicated my life for most of my life. And so as you think about this, uh, we're actually going to show you also a, a kind of a Instagram star, this young gal that kind of this last year gained great popularity around the, around the world uh, with her kind of her Instagram feed. And, and as you watch it, I want you to think of, and then, then, the, then, then Josh and Liz are going to come up and sing. But I want you to think about um, what, what is it about her? Kind of what's her mystique? What makes her so cool that she would have tens of thousands of followers? Take a look.
laughs the loudest Or the one that can never be alone I don't wanna be that call at four o'clock in the morning Cause I'm the only one in the world that you know that won't be home
powerful song, isn't it? I wonder what you're thinking as you listen to it. I know what I think. I am amazed at how hard it is to live sober. Living sober is hard. This life is hard. I mean, can I say this in church? Life kicks the crap out of you. It does, doesn't it? You ever... You know, ever had kids and think, oh, it's just going to be smooth sailing with kids. It's going to be smooth sailing in my marriage. It's going to be smooth sailing in my job. It's going to be smooth sailing with my extended family, my family of origin. Nothing is easy. I've even got to suffer with Pittsburgh Steelers fans in the audience today. There's one over here. There's one over here. I'm surrounded. Don't you think that's true? There's only one thing harder than living sober. And that's trying to Stay high. Because, man, the disruptions and the brokenness of our life, the things that we'll do, an Instagram video of a popular girl where a drink is always in her hand. These powerful cravings can overpower our lives, overpower our prayers, overpower our commitment to Jesus, our commitment to our marriage And it's just really powerful to think of what addiction does. There's a book that Josh Eisenhardt, who's our Shelby campus lead teacher over there and lead pastor, and he uh, just read this book, In the the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Anybody heard of that? Just curious. Anybody even heard of the book, book on addictions? This is what it says. Addicts jeopardize their lives for the sake of making the moment livable. In other words, you're trying to... You're trying to get to the point where there's some kind of equilibrium in your life where you feel okay. And when a person is truly addicted, nothing sways them from the habit. Not illness, not the sacrifice of love and relationships, not the loss of all earthly goods, not even the crushing of their dignity or the fear of dying. The drive of a true addict is relentless. Some of us are living there today in this room. Some of us are teetering. Some of us are in the journey along the way. You see, drugs, we talk about alcohol or opioids or the the romance now that America's had for the last 50 years with marijuana. It's unbelievable the love that people have for the way marijuana makes them feel. Here's what's interesting. They all serve the purpose of making the pain tolerable. And the humdrum worth living for. This is true for every person. I'll tell you, for most of my adult life, you know what my drug of choice was? Food. Let me tell you, you don't think a cheeseburger when you don't need it, but you kind of would like just to feel better about your life. It serves the same purpose. It could be, for some of you, your drug of choice could be making money. Like every time you make a good deal, some people have a magical way. But my point today is we're talking about actual substances. In the book, 
in the, in the realm of hungry ghosts. It says in a moment, a person can go from complete misery and vulnerability to complete invulnerability. I was at a dinner party recently, a person I've known a long time, battled with alcoholism their whole life. The person was absolutely delightful for the first part of the dinner. And for the second part of the dinner, held everyone at the table hostage. We're all, we were all 15 again, wondering what we should do. Because all of a sudden, you could tell the person he was in the first hour of the dinner was not the person he was in the second hour. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to know what to do. So here's what I want you to know today. Dave Wilson really put the great majority of this message together. And this is from Andy Stanley. Our cravings will either rule us or we will rule them. This is absolutely true. And the big idea of this series becomes then how we handle our cravings will determine the direction and the quality of our life. Because what we know is that cravings have consequences, don't they? Some of you didn't grow up with a parent in your home. Because why? They were gone because a craving is what took them over. So what Jack Wilson, who we're going to show in a video in just a minute, he said, you've got to realize that an, an addict doesn't have relationships. They have hostages. Because it's the addiction that we begin to love more than anything else. Even for people who are manageable in their addiction, some people live for a Friday night to Sunday night addiction. And then they work hard all week to fulfill what they really want to live for on Friday night. Often it's alcohol or some other behavior that in itself is not wrong, but out of control is very destructive. I believe that everyone in this room, every adult in this room for sure, has a story of your family, history, and alcohol. I would be willing to bet that there's a story in every single family that's here in this room. Alcohol destroyed my grandmother's family. My dad's mom, Mimi, was one of the most charismatic people I ever met. She lost her father and her two brothers to alcohol-related diseases. Two of them died of cirrhosis of the liver. Another one just died from a lifelong of alcohol abuse. Compared to that, Dave Wilson said to me, he said he doesn't remember a single day in his home growing up where either his father or his mother was drunk. Think of how that affected him. I compare, Dave and I have always been a good pair to lead Kensington with Mark Nelson because Dave and I grew up in such disparate homes. I never saw alcohol in my home. I never saw alcohol in my parents' home. From the day I was born to today, my mother's 92 years old, never had alcohol in the home. It's interesting. What I remember about it is I never, ever wondered what people were going to be like. People were always who they were because people were, whether you liked them or not, sober. It was fascinating. I'm going to tell you how that actually came about. How did I go from a family legacy where people were killing themselves with, with alcohol to a home where I grew up that was completely without fear? Amazing story. It all hinges on my father. And I'll tell you that uh, later in the service. But see, the craving for alcohol, alcohol in itself, I want to just be clear. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. is not evil. It's a sign of blessing to the people of Israel, actually. The, the, the fruit of the vine. The, the gladness of wine, that, that's part of it. 
part of God's gift to people. But the craving, the craving rules people, and whether it's whatever your addiction is. I will say this. In the world, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything that's destroyed more lives than alcohol. I'd be willing to venture today that all the people killed in all the wars of the last 200 years is probably a small percentage of the people whose lives have been disrupted, corrupted, and crushed by alcohol. I'd be willing to bet that. We, there's an estimate that of the 7 billion people on earth, that about 1 billion of them have a serious problem with alcohol or substance. It's a powerful, powerful image. That doesn't count the people that were affected by their problem. So today we want to focus on alcohol. So we're taking the theme of this series, which is how do we handle alcohol substances will determine the direction and the quality of our life. So why, why alcohol? Why marijuana? Why, why the pills that we take? Because life's hard and it's difficult. I've watched, I'm watching people in my family that are really struggling with depression, anxiety. Many of you are struggling with that, maybe more than we've ever seen. So what's happening a lot of it we don't know. We don't even know why. But we do know that there are some common realities. We drink or we take an addictive substance to what? To fill the hole. There's just a sense of a hole in us that we're trying to fill. We drink to numb our pain. A lot of people drink or use drugs to feel more courage. <laughs> I remember, uh, Tim, you remember when we did the listening room at Troy and we'd bring just airy musicians to come and perform at the, in the Troy Auditorium. We did that for years. Really cool. People are not connected to Kensington. Over and over, men and women would come to play, and right before the concert, they'd be like, man, I'm really nervous. We're like, why? Well, because usually we're playing in bars and, you know, take a couple drinks before you go on to feel what? Normal. This is the way we live. We drink to forget our past. We drink to celebrate our victories. We drink to fit in. We drink to be cool. Dave Wilson's story. The whole thing was he knew his parents, his dad was an alcoholic. He was never going to drink. And he went to his first party in ninth grade. They handed him a beer and he drank it. And he wanted another one. So, whoever you are, if you find yourself questioning or wondering if something is controlling your life or if there are people in your life that are controlling you or you're allowing yourself to be held hostage by their addiction, I just want you to know, Celebrate Recovery is the safest place at Kensington for getting control of your life and also figuring how to establish maybe boundaries for the addictive people in your life, dealing with hurts, habits, and hang-ups and crazy relationships. So let me just give you a little bit on alcohol. Alcohol, by nature, is not bad. As I shared before, there are probably 20 or 30 verses in the Old Testament about Israel that wine is a sign and, and fruitfulness of the vine is a sign of prosperity and God's blessing. And so even in the New Testament, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, stop drinking water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So all of a sudden, Paul's not only evangelist, he thinks he's a doctor. And so he was thinking, Timothy, it actually would help you to have a little wine. I think I've known a lot of Christians who've taken that, that verse and used it to the max. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament says, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. In other words, 
there is nothing innately wrong. But there are also many verses in the scripture that say to be careful. Be careful with alcohol. Proverbs 20 says it this way. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. I wonder how many men in this room, maybe a few women too. I wonder how many men have been in actual fistfights or brawls in your life. And I wonder how many of them were related to alcohol. You would be surprised how many of us in this room that's true of. I was not a drinker in high school, but I remember breaking up brawls at high school dances, college events, and so forth. And I often would see a person that would have not a spirit of belligerence in them, but put, put, pour some alcohol in and then look out. Really interesting. Some would get passive, some would get aggressive. But the point is this. Everybody who's ever been around substances knows this, that wine can be a mocker. Beer, a brawler. All of a sudden, wine can turn a person, the most charming person in the room, for a while. And then what is at first a really neat strain becomes slightly out of tune and then becomes like fingernails on a chalkboard. You ever lived it? Yeah, like hundreds of times. First Peter goes on to say, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. What are pagans? Pagans were people that were polytheistic, who worshipped multiple gods, who would have worshipped the Roman and the Greek gods, or would be completely atheist, or some of the gods that were not, not a vision of the one true God. He says, you've done enough of that, living in debauchery, which is what? That's just living out of control, carousing, lust, drunkenness, orgies, detestable idolatry. I wonder if today... If for some of you today, it's a day. I, just, I thought about this last night. I thought, what if this is a day where I could just say to you, haven't you spent enough time with that? Haven't you spent enough time being controlled by whatever it is that's controlling you that you're trying to fill the hole in your soul with? Listen, it could be shopping. It could be makeup. It could be trying to look beautiful. It could be working out at the gym. It could be anything. But haven't you spent enough time like, wouldn't today be a great day to say, I want to learn to live in a way that isn't mockery and brawling or just crazy behavior, destructive behavior. One more. Proverbs 23 says, do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Last night, Paul and I were driving. Uh, y- yesterday afternoon, we were driving to Farmington where her dad lives. My father-in-law just turned 99 last week. He's an amazing guy. Uh, he had pig valves put in at Cleveland Clinic 52 years ago. Three pig valves. Uh, and he's still living. I, I should t- some, I, Somebody tell Cleveland Clinic. I'm, I'm sure they'd love to come and talk to him. And he's an amazing guy. And we're driving down there. We're on the way down. We got we got in one of the worst disagreements we've had in a long time. And she was really hurt by something I said. And we went most of the, most of the drive in silence. And we, there were terse words spoken between us. And over the last 10 years, it's very rare for us. We used to have that a lot. Now, very rare when that happens. But it happened yesterday. And you know what I thought of? 
I was angry and she was angry. I thought, what if we would have had that if both of us would have had a couple drinks? It would not have been good. Because what? The inhibitions would have been gone and then all of a sudden you're yelling and you're screaming, which is a lot of you, you, you grew up in homes like that. I just would say, personally, I'm so glad that I have lived my life trying to live mentally sober, even though I've struggled. Like a lot of you, I've struggled with anxiety in my life. I've struggled with low-grade depression. But it's really interesting. The scripture says, be careful. Because in the end, if you're not careful, what's he going to do? It's going to bite like a viper. So before you take a drink, pause. There's a lot at stake. To talk about what's at stake and to kind of give us perspective on this, I'd like to do this now. I'd like to receive our offering. Uh, and again, thank you for uh, a great, great 2017. Unbelievable. Can I tell you one? Give me just tell you one thing. You know, one of our 10 global partners is in Cuba, where we support two of the provinces. We've got uh, several dozen evangelists that go door to door all throughout these two provinces. They saw 88,000 people come to Christ in door-to-door evangelism in Cuba, resulting in about 900 new house churches and other relationships happening to that. That's just one thing we got to do in 2017. Is that pretty cool? Awesome. Great celebration. Uh, actually, and so as, as we receive the offering, know that it goes to support ministry here, ministry at the Birmingham campus, and ministry around the world. If you're our guest... You're welcome to let it go by. You're also welcome to put large chunks of money and cash in as well, if you'd like to. <laughs> so as we do that, as that goes by, I'd love for you to hear Dave Wilson interview Jack Wilson. They're no relation. You know, Dave is our Orient, Orient lead guy and started Kensington with me and Mark Nelson. And, and uh, Jack Wilson has spent the last 40 years counseling alcoholics. He's probably one of the foremost authorities in the world, specifically about alcoholism, other drugs, some alcohol. He is, he's, he's one of the most knowledgeable people there is. And so he's going to help us maybe think about this. And then I'm going to come back with uh, a good friend that many of you know, uh, for him to share his journey with you. Okay. Take a look at this. Let's take what you just said and apply it to like alcohol. Sure. When is that a problem? Let's talk about predisposition first. I think it's really, really important that people understand uh, that this isn't settled science, okay? But the trend line has been around for a very, very long time, uh, and and it influences my thinking to the level that I truly believe that a certain percentage of the population are physiologically predisposed uh, to developing addictions, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or a controlled substance uh, we're physiologically predisposed. And the best way to figure out whether you're physiologically predisposed is to look at your family history. Mm-hmm. You know, take a look at that family tree you know, and see if there are people in your past uh, who um, have had problems with drinking or, or whatever, because that used to be the term that was used. Uh, and if there is, then for you, drinking is something that you really should not be cavalier about. It's something you should really be paying some attention to. Because if you have a physiological predisposition, then you're going to move through uh, recreational, moderate drinking uh, to irresponsible drinking and addiction much more quickly than someone who doesn't have a physiological predisposition. 
Now, obviously, somebody like me, you know, I look mm-hmm. at my family tree, mm-hmm. right. and I have two alcoholic parents. Mm-hmm. For decades, I never even thought about it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I can drink a beer, right. I can drink whatever, it's right. no big deal. You would have immediately said to me, dude, be very, very careful with this. Exactly. Everybody should be careful, but especially somebody with a background yeah, like mine. Absolutely. So what do I do? Uh, well, in your situation, uh, I, would have, I would have said to you that you need to be aware of the fact that becoming intoxicated is just not safe for you. Mm. If you were to drink even moderately, uh, then I would say there's a better than a 60% chance that you would have triggered mm. uh, your physiological predisposition, and we'd be talking about some kind of a recovery issue. And I've heard you say in the past the analogy of uh, playing Russian roulette with predisposition. Talk about that. Yeah. When we have a predisposition, um, the higher that predisposition is, when we look at our family history, you know, both your parents have a substance abuse issue, then the likelihood that four out of, if there are five kids in the family, like my family, uh, the probability is that four out of those five kids are physiologically predisposed. Uh, and then if the grandparents you know, have, a, you know, have an issue, the aunts and the uncles. So the more people you have in your family tree uh, or the more, uh, more culturally relevant it is for you uh, and you're playing Russian roulette and you're spinning the cylinder, okay, if you don't have a physiological predisposition, yeah, you can probably develop alcoholism. It's not likely, but it's probably good. But let's say you have one bullet in the cylinder, but if all of those factors that I just described to you are there, then you've got five bullets um, in there, and there's only six spots. Yeah. You know? So the higher the issue is there in terms of, of number of people, then oh, we get, better be careful with this Russian roulette thing. What would you say to the person sitting out here that says, I don't really have a problem with drinking? Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they really honestly don't think they have a problem. How does a person know? Well, one of the biggest issues in terms of the way you know is the feedback that you're getting from the people around you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have people saying to you, uh, I think you should uh, cut back on your drinking, well, pay attention to them, see what they're saying. Uh, If you're in a circumstance or situation where family members, colleagues, whatever, have said to you something about your drinking and you get angry about it, well, pay attention to what to what they're what they're saying. You know, uh, if there's a circumstance or situation in which you feel guilty about your drinking, well, pay attention to that. Uh, and uh, and if you're in a circumstance or a situation where at any point in time you've ever uh, had a hangover, and you wake up the next morning and you and you convince yourself that you need an eye opener to get the day going. Mm-hmm. What I just did was what's called the CAGE, C A G E, uh, and it's taught to physicians and and therapists uh, to get an introductory idea in terms of if you say yes to two of those four questions, then we need to have a chat about whether you're drinking irresponsibly or perhaps you're in a circumstance or situation where you've already what we call tipped over Mm. into addiction. Now walk through the cage again. I'd love to hear the C-A-J-G-E explained. Okay. Have you ever tried to cut back? So that's the C. That's the C. Have you ever been angry uh, when someone questioned your drinking? Mm. Have you ever felt guilty, that's the G, about your drinking, and have you ever had an eye, what's called an eye-opener, you know, a, a drink early in the day uh, to, to help you to have fewer um, anxiety issues or, or fewer symptoms of, of hangover. So that's the cage. Talk about, I remember a decade ago or so when we talked about alcohol, 
You talked about the 30-day sort of test. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, this is something that's kind of idiosyncratic to me uh, in that when someone says to me, well, how do I know if I have a drinking problem? My response is don't drink for 30 days and come back and talk to me. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk about how it goes. And I found over the years that um, I've done that, you know, I don't know how many people. And um, it really is a very good predictor or indicator of what role alcohol uh, is is playing in their life if they just try to go, okay, 30 days, not going to drink. And for most folks that I've talked to, ah, it's easily a piece of cake, don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. And occasionally it is. But if they asked me that question, see, it fits right in the cage thing. Mm -hmm. They asked me that question, that's telling me, well, this is worth taking another look at this. You know? So try it for 30 days and then let's talk. Okay, that's Jack. Pretty powerful. This is Miles Alters, guys. Welcome, Miles. Hi. So uh, you're not only a Kensington Birmingham staff guy, but a good friend. I had the privilege of marrying you to Amanda Wheeler many years ago. And uh, Tim and Cindy are back up from Ohio for this. Hey, boy. Cora, how are you doing, bud? Good to see you. Um, the, um, I remember meeting you and thinking you were still think you're one of the coolest guys I know. When I found out that alcohol was a problem for you, I was surprised because you always think alcohol is somebody else, not somebody you love and know and hang out with. So say hi to everybody. Hey, good to see you all. <laughs> and I want to thank you for having courage to be here. Would you guys just thank, thank Miles for stepping up? It's not easy. Um, when did... Maybe just give me some of your background. What's, what's, what's the background of your life as you listen to Jack talk? Yeah, yeah. So Jack talked about the predisposition, and I had that on both sides of my family, you know, alcoholism. So um, there wasn't any alcohol in the house growing up, just my mom's single parent, but her, her I, parents. I, yeah, did. her parents. So this is surprising to me because your mom really created a safe alcohol-free zone. Your home mm -hmm. felt safe, but you still felt this hole, and there was this thing in the past. Yeah. It's fascinating. I just want—I didn't tell you this earlier, but there was no alcohol in my life or the life of my bro, my two brothers and sisters. Um, for the next generation, alcohol has started to come back because it's so popular in culture. Mm -hmm. I have six nieces and nephews who've had major, major events with alcohol, like motorcycle crashes, wow. car crashes, DUIs, all of this. It's amazing that it was like. It was like the disease was out there lurking, ready to reclaim the next generation. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's a good way to put it because it was. You know, I had no idea just since I grew up and didn't see it. But once I, once I first had that drink, I can see now looking back on it how, I, how that really took root and, yeah. and, and went downhill pretty quickly. So how did it start and where did it start? Yeah, it w I was over at a friend's house, and, and there was a two-hour delay. I remember on a Wednesday in ninth grade. So I was 14, and, and uh, he had some vodka and said, hey, my mom mixes it with orange juice. Let's, let's try it. And so uh, immediately at that point, you know, going to school, it, it made school enjoyable. You know, and it was the first time I thought, hey, this is, this is fun. You started with an eye-opener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a bad way yeah. to start. Yeah, yeah a horrible way. way to start. But yeah. you found that it really made you feel better and made you feel, you mentioned, more courageous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 
I think I was, I was kind of shy growing up. You know, I was scared to, to say certain things and, and just really be outspoken. And uh, then when I had alcohol, it, it wasn't in a way of, I'm going to be outspoken, aggressive, but just more so, hey, I can, I can fit in. Yeah. You know, I have that hole. So that, what happened? So, you, so it became kind of a regular part of your life. Yeah. And then you had a couple of crisis moments. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the first one came when I was 17. You know, so just within three years, that was the first time I got a DUI. And it it it, it opened my eyes a little bit. Uh, but I didn't believe anyone. I didn't believe that I could still have a problem with it at that age. You know, I had to go to AA and I saw people um, that I thought, oh, they're old. They're older. They're, they're bums. My life won't be like yeah. that. And then um, well, I got a second DUI when I was 19. Wow. And that's when people really started telling me I had a problem. Um, and, and one of the turning points was, you know, a guy was mentoring me through AA. And I say, oh, you're going to tell me I have a problem. Everyone says that, uh, which is a really good, <laughs> which, which should be an indicator, yeah. you know, everyone's saying that. But he just said, no, I won't, I won't tell you that. And he said, well, do you? And that was the first time I thought about it. Yeah. Do I have a problem? Yeah. That's when I had to look at it for myself. Wow. It's interesting. I've got at least three nephews who've been through recovery and uh, all three of them came out of recovery, but their goal was to prove to themselves that they could drink moderately. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> that, that rings, uh, rings a bell dramatically. Yeah. I mean, from that time, from 19, I wanted to drink socially. I'd already met, as, as Jack mentioned, the tipping point. I already went over the line where I was uh, a problem drinker, you know, from that point. And so I tried to control it for the next several years. And I, I could do it, but it was, it was miserable, you know, because yeah. I'd always want more. So I could tell myself, hey, um, God can give me the, the strength to not go overboard. And there would be periods of sobriety, three months, six months. But then as soon as I picked up that drink, it was right back to where I was before. Yeah. Well, it's still true that... Alcohol is everywhere you go. So you go to a dinner party or a birthday party or go out with friends, alcohol is still everywhere, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Staring you in the face. Yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't mention this to you either, but I always, you know, one of the things I noticed too, I was on a flight one time and I, I noticed someone didn't finish their little shot of alcohol. And it, it blew my mind. I thought, how could they not have finished that? And so even when I'm out today at bars, wherever it is, I always notice who finishes an alcohol drink. I always notice who finishes a beer, who doesn't, and who finishes the fastest. Hmm. I'm exactly the same way with food. It sounds silly. I know Mm -hmm. exactly what food's left on the table. (laughs) And and in the past, if I knew people well enough, I would eat it. (laughs) Even if you didn't know people well enough. Even if I didn't. didn't. I was a youth director, so I never bought, I would take kids on retreat and I would, yeah, it was just, it was crazy (laughs) because it was, it totally controlled. I mean, it was, my impulse thing was just, was out of control. Okay. So. What led you to, 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 to make a, a decision to really change the direction of your life? Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, you married us, you know, me and Amanda, almost seven. Well, we'll be seven years yeah. this year now. So Great day. Yeah. Great day. Best officiant ever. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. 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 So um, yeah. it was, I mean, it, it was amazing because from that point I realized, okay, I can have this life that I want. And throughout our first year of marriage, I would drink, you know, occasionally, but that occasionally quickly turned to almost every day. Yeah. And so I started to see the effect that it had on her. Mm. And, and, you know, she was so patient. 
I mean, you've known her for so long. She's an angel, She's right? a wonderful person. Wonderful person. But I, I started just, you know, I would come home from work. Or I wouldn't come home from work. I'd stop by the bar for a drink. And next thing you know, it's 11 o'clock on a weeknight. She's, she's worried, you know, doesn't know where I am. So that's when I realized. So she'd call you, you wouldn't answer your phone? Yeah, I just, yeah, I just wouldn't answer my phone. I just would look at it and I'll be home soon. I'll let her know, you know, send her a text. I'll be home. Stop calling. And it was, I started to see it and that's when it started to click to me that these people that are these so-called older bums in AA, that I was just traveling down that path. Yeah. They didn't start out as bums. They didn't. They started out as probably healthy, strong people and that the addiction took over. So um, it was to that point you got really serious about AA and recovery and, and made a commitment that you couldn't drink anymore, that alcohol needed to be part of the past, if at all possible. Mm-hmm. So... How, how, how have you been doing? Been doing great. Uh, five years of sobriety um, on uh, December 12th, 2012. So just passed. Yeah. So. But it hasn't gone away. The pull hasn't mm-hmm. gone away. It's always there. You're surrounded by people everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of your key strategies to staying sober? Yeah, support. You know, I... Uh, a lot of people, people close to me, they know that alcoholism is a, is a struggle of mine. They know that I'm in recovery now. Now a lot of other people. Know now too. a lot. Now, yeah, yeah. Now a lot more do as well. But it's, it's great because I told you when I was going up and down and trying to have sobriety and just keeping it between God and myself, I wasn't inviting anyone else yeah. in. And so when I realized, hey, I'm just, I cannot have another drink, yeah. I started to invite other people in. And God put the support system around me. It's really incredible. And let me, I'll just be honest with you guys. If you have a destructive behavior and it's just between you and God, it doesn't matter. You're still a destructive addict. Until, until you bring other people in, you're, you're never, you're never going to ultimately start, start to win that battle. I'm just telling you from a lifetime of talking to people and from my own experience, I would say if other people aren't involved, we're stuck in the addiction. We're stuck in the hiding. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So how's it changed your life? You've been five years sober. What's that done for Amanda and your children? Uh, just your life in general. Oh, yeah. Cause you still haven't, you still, I'm sure you still feel anxious. Yeah. I'm sure. You felt anxious doing this today. Yeah. Yeah. It just, you know, knowing that God, I have the support and God will always be with me in it. And that I, I don't have to do this alone. I don't have to live this life alone. Um, that uh, also the motivation that keeps me going is is knowing, you know, what life is like now. Well, I'm the best husband in the world. Right, Amanda? That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, best Amanda dad, too. Yeah. Uh, hey, okay. You rock, One clap. Girl. Yeah, Love there you. she is. There she is. Hey, baby. <laughs> so, um, but it, yeah, life life is just, I, I have the most beautiful kids and, and a life that, um, I only dreamed of, you know, and, and one saying that I've always liked was, you know, sobriety delivers everything alcohol promised. Yeah. And that rings true. Say that again. Yeah. Sobriety delivers everything alcohol promised. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, I think that's a good place to finish. I, I, I love you. I'm proud of you telling your story. You're going to be around. People want to talk to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I welcome, you know, anyone that, that ever wants to talk uh, when you see me in the halls. Uh, you get a hold of me. I'm, I'm always here every Sunday. You're a good man. So. You'll be a safe person to approach as well. Miles Alters, guys, give him a big hand. Awesome. I'll pray for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for, for working in Miles. Thank you for 
protecting him and his family. We just continue to pray for all those that are struggling. Thanks for his courage. Just tell this truthfully. And, and Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit is working in him, that Jesus, you've poured out your love in his heart and that he is a living example of a, a guy that's, that's going for it. We always know our weakness, but we're, it's so incredible when we step out in faith and begin to trust you and see that change is possible, making the journey is possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Amen. Thanks, buddy. Thank Appreciate you. you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. You know, um, as I was thinking uh, about Miles and thinking about Josh and thinking about some of the people I know, maybe even opioids, uh, more, if it's even possible, more than alcohol, that, that some of you are here in this room, it isn't going to really matter what we say, but there might be a seed planted today so that when the moment when you do tip over the edge, if you haven't already tipped over the edge, that you know there's safe places to come and where you'll be loved and encouraged to change and get help. This is a really, really big deal because Miles was, I mean, he was flirting with losing Amanda, losing his family, losing his future. I just want to give you a few things, a few triggers as I talk to Miles and other people. Um, I remember as a, as a, as a teenager, people, all, guys and sometimes gals would always brag about their high tolerance for alcohol. You ever heard that or ever used it? Actually, kind of bragging about high tolerance is probably a pretty good indication that you're an alcoholic because it's kind of one of those signs that uh, another great test is once you start and you don't want to stop, you're probably an alcoholic, most likely. Here's the most interesting thing that I want to say to parents. Do you realize that a, a, a person's brain is not fully developed until sometime in the early 20s? 21 is a good marker. There's a reason that 21 became an alcohol marker because research says that the brain isn't fully developed until 21. And what we found is that when kids start, uh, like, like the cigarette companies knew, if they could, get a, they could get a guy or gal smoking at 14 or 16, what do they know? They know we got them for life because the impulse part of your brain is more developed than the rational part of your brain. And at 21, the rational part of your brain starts to catch up in your human development. You know that? And so the more you can keep yourself and the people you love away from substances, the longer and the better the chance they'll have that it won't be ultimately controlling their life. But you start, a lot of you in this room, a lot of teenagers in 20-something room, you start smoking pot when you're 13 and 14. So all of a sudden you're 28 and it's hard to imagine your life without pot. You know, you start drinking it for miles, drinking at 14. Joe Worm, the guy that actually launched this campus, closet alcoholic his whole life. He said he remembers being 12 years old, drinking a beer in his best friend's garage. His dad's fr- fridge had the, had the beer out in the fridge. And he said, they all, dr- they all drank a beer. They've been playing baseball. And he said, okay, let's go play ball. But all the kids ran out. Joe remembers lingering in the garage and turning and looking back at the refrigerator. Like all the other guys, fine. They're off. Who who knows what they're ready to go play. All of a sudden, Joe, for the rest of his life, all he wants is what's in that refrigerator. So what I'm saying to parents then is be very careful what's in your house. Because it doesn't matter what you tell your kids. It's what you do. 1 Corinthians 10 says it this way. Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I have the right to do anything. You do. 
But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And then he says something powerful that I want you to think about today as a practice. No one should seek their own good, but instead seek the good of others. Now, what would the world be like if, if the 300 of us in this room or 350 of us in this room, we left and we go, okay, for the rest of our lives, our focus is what Jesus Christ could do through us, not to feather our own nest, but to serve others and seek their good. Do you realize the force we would be in the world? It would be unbelievable. Here's what I would say about substances. Substances create the illusion that we're actually liking other people, but it almost never results in action. Like you end up talking about seeking the good of the world or of others, but it doesn't get turned into action because to turn something into action takes your full faculties. It takes your full energy and your full focus. It's a powerful thing to think about. So let me just tell you this. I think about my own life and my own legacy and my history of alcoholism that still runs through streams in my family. Even though my grandmother had lost her dad and was, losing, was in the process of losing her two brothers to alcohol, she and my grandfather, Grandy, who was just an awesome guy, they continued to host dinner parties where there was a lot of alcohol. That was free-flowing. And sometimes you can't make these stuff, this stuff up. You think about what turns your life around or what affected your life. They were having a, a drinking party in their home. This, was, this would have been 90, 90 years ago. My dad were living. He'd be 96. So at age six, he's in bed. He hears all the noise. He leaves his bedroom and comes downstairs and there's 20 or 30 people in the living room and they're drinking and they're laughing and, and, and they've reached the point where all of a sudden everybody's talking too loud. You know, part of the, you know, you talk at one level with one drink, you talk at a different level with two drinks, third level, you're interrupting and you're talking louder, right? We've all lived that. My dad walks into the room and everybody stops and looks at my dad. He's a six-year-old boy. He looks at my, mother, my grand, grandmother and grandfather, Mimi and Grandy, and he goes, Mommy, Daddy, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? He just was so confused. So the next day, with dad watching, my grandfather emptied out the liquor cabinet and poured every bottle into the kitchen sink. And from that moment to the end of their life, my dad, from that moment to the end of his life, and from that moment to the end of my life, it was just a decision in our family that life was better without alcohol. It was really interesting. Now, some of you, it's almost impossible to think that you could have a family dinner because it's such a part of your culture. I understand that. Your decision is going to have to be, to be how to keep it moderate. And then your other decision is going to how to help the other people in your life when they derail. Because I've already experienced that in, in the next generation. I've got, I've got three nephews who've been in near-fatal collisions because of alcohol, because alcohol, alcohol got reintroduced into the generation below me. It's already happened. And so it's not a question of if, it's only a question of when. So you have to decision, decide how you're going to manage it in your life. The one thing you know is that drunkenness or where it begins to control you is going to change your life. I just want to say this. My grandfather died in 1978 at age 82. I got to tell you, I don't know what was in him, but the fact that he listened to my dad, to my six-year-old dad, 
was maybe the greatest gift that anybody's ever given me in all my lifetime. So think about the legacy that you want to create in your home. This is a really big deal. Okay? Thanks for letting me share that. Finally, two steps for all of us to take towards victory in the destructive or the controlling things that control our lives. I'm going to do them in reverse because this is how Dave wrote the message, and I think it makes sense. Number one is this. I'm challenging some of you today that this is the day where you admit that you need help. To be able to say, okay, I'm admitting it. I need help. I can't do this alone. I, I already told you. I live my whole... I've. I've been too heavy my whole adult life. I'm too heavy right now. I got on the scale this morning before I came today. I weighed 220 pounds. And I know I, know I look super fantastic. But that's still what the Surgeon General and the, the medical says. I'm still 20 pounds too heavy. But for almost all my adult life, I weighed 260 pounds, 40 pounds more than I weigh now. And I wanted to lose that weight. I felt like a prisoner in my body. I kept eating in destructive patterns. I had joint pain all the time, knees, back, all these struggles. I actually thought about doing Weight Watchers for 10 years, but I didn't want the humiliation of having to go into a room and admit that I needed help. Anybody else? Can anybody relate to this? Some other thing that controls you. So I went into this Weight Watchers and it's been six years and uh, I just dreaded it. And I walked in because when you walk in, what are you admitting? Come on. You need help. It's just, just part of the deal. And so I, got, I started to get help. And in four and a half months, I lost 40 pounds. That was six years ago. And I've kept it off. Thank you. It's been awesome. Got out of Weight Watchers. But my goal was still 200. My goal wasn't 220. My goal was 200 to be truly healthy. Since I have gotten out of Weight Watchers for six years, I have maintained that 220 pounds. But on my goal to 200, guess how much progress I've made? Zero. Because you can't do it alone. Maybe the rarest of individuals, but for most of us, it's something we need alone. That's where I learned, this is called the power lunch bag. When you're the leader of a successful church, and really having a great ministry in the community, and you have a lot of credibility, you carry your lunch bag around with you, people are impressed. They look at you and go, that must be a powerful, influential person. You know what? To start carrying this bag. And by the way, some of you in Birmingham, you remember the black bag? The zipper finally broke. So we gave it a decent burial. This one is six months old. I don't like it as much as the other one. But in it, every day, I'll have an apple and a banana, some low-fat peanut butter, a half a cup of low-fat hummus, and a half a cup of carrots. And, I, and I've learned to really love that, and that's most of what I eat for, until time to have a, a, a good dinner early in the afternoon. I found it's a really healthy way for me to live. But i got to tell you, it's not an impressive way to live. Hi, I'm Steve Andrews, pastor of Kensington <laughs> Church. Yeah, got a lot of, you know, it just... It doesn't play real well, but the point of it, it's admitting that I needed help. And there are two ways to live. You can conceal, and conceal leads to what? Leads to death. 
As long as your craving is a secret, it's going to have a power over you. As long as Miles kept it to himself, what he did, it was leading him to death. Because some of you might think, well, I don't think I have a problem. You know what I would say? Bring it into the light and dissect it with people you love and who want the best for you. You say, well, I don't think I'm addicted to anything. Fine. Bring it out to people you love and look at it in the light of day. Get in the brightest light you can get and find out what it is for you. Because you, know so, you know what some people are addicted to? Being angry. I've been around people all my life. Their addiction is anger. They're angry about everything. They're angry about anybody crosses them. And if anybody says to them something about it, what happens? They get angry. So find out what it is. Let this be a day where you admit that you need help. Luke 12 says this. Jesus said, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And what you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I love what Josh Eisenhart, our Shelby guy, he says, God exposes what we cover and covers what we expose. Isn't that cool? And so for some of you today, this could be the most amazing day to come out of the light. For some of you, start teaching the legacy of dysfunction of your own family history so your kids don't have to go through the same thing. This is a universal global challenge. Don't conceal. That's one way to live. The other way is to reveal. James, one of Jesus' followers, says, confess your sins to each other. Each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Earlier in the last service, John Richardson. I've been in a small group with John Richardson for the last 25 years. And several of those guys go to the Birmingham campus. And in those 25 years, I don't think... This group, this, we, we as a group of guys have hidden anything from each other. I mean, we have had the rawest, most real moments. But to have trusted friends that know your junk, know your crap, know the, the part of you that you just hate the idea of anybody knowing, it's messy. But when you come out of hiding, you can really begin to change. That's what CR, I, I just realized, CR not only has a place for adults to celebrate recovery, but they have a minute, we have a ministry called The Landing for middle school and high school kids that are beginning to ask questions about their, maybe their family or their own life. And then even a place called Celebration Place for 5- to 12-year-olds. Get help. Admit that you need help. The second and actually the first step is this. I'd love for this to be true. Ben, you can come out now. Admit. This was... This is, I think admitting that I needed help was harder than, the, than this one, but admitting that I'm powerless without God. Because I wanted to conceal, I didn't want to reveal. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 12.10, this is uh, one of Jesus, the late, latest apostle that was the Apostle Paul, and he says this, he says, I just let Christ take over, and the weaker I get, the stronger I become. You know what this is a sign to me of, don't you? What is this a sign of? It's a sign of weakness. But the Bible says when I'm weak, I'm what? I'm strong. No, I hate this. I hate this. I hate that I'm weak. But I am. I hate that I can't do it alone. I'd love to be an island. I'd love to 
be the Simon and Garfunkel. I'd love to be the rock in the island. Nothing touches me. Nobody hurts me. You know what? That's a formula for disaster. And so as we finish with just a beautiful song of an image of, I'm praying that this is going to be a moment where you say, Jesus, I want you to change the legacy of my family. I want you to change whatever the cravings that are controlling me. By the way, we're going to talk in two weeks. We're going to, in two weeks, we're inviting people to bring tokens back and leave them on the stage at all of our campuses. I want you to start thinking right now about the token that you're going to bring. But I thought I probably need to bring a, like a, a Netflix prescription for binge watching Netflix. I thought how much time I've wasted the last three years when I could have been seeking the good of others and I'm just sitting watching crap on Netflix. Anybody? Oh, maybe I'm the only one in the country. How do they stay in business? So some of you, I would really challenge you in two weeks, come back with a vodka bottle. Dead serious. I love it. Some people have some guts to bring the stuff in your liquor cabinet. Because guess what? Your kids are going to drink it. About 100% guarantee. Maybe 99%. But get rid of it. What could you put in your liquor cabinet? Credible music. Books, maybe books about how you could seek the good of others and change the world. Put that in your liquor cabinet. Or put that in your medicine cabinet. It's a big deal. Listen, I know we, there's, the, 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 the struggle with stress and anxiety that Miles talked about is epidemic. I understand that. But Jesus Christ has offered us a new token. And you know what the token is? Paul says in Ephesians, he says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, just a, just a crazy behavior. He said, instead, be filled with the Spirit. You know what Jesus says? That hole in you? That hole you've been trying to fill, let me fill it. I'd say, what do you have to lose? Because here's the amazing thing. Is when Jesus comes in, he doesn't destroy. He gives life. He gives hope. It says, Paul goes on, when you're filled with the Spirit, you know what happens? You speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. You have a melody in your heart. When was the last time you got up and drove to work on Monday morning and you were humming praise to Jesus, just kind of naturally coming out of you because life is good and you love the adventure and you're thinking how you're going to love the people at work and how you're going to going to disciple your kids and how you're going to do something beautiful with the world. That's what Jesus brings. He brings hope and expectation of a new life. And he brings the thankful spirit. It says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I would love it. Oh, man, it would be so awesome. Jesus, if you would move people from being drunk on whatever addiction it is that that they're using to give them courage or to heal the pain or to hide the hole, would you give them your Holy Spirit? Would you let them know how much you love them? You, You died on the cross and rose again from the dead so that we could 
speak encouraging words to each other and feel heartfelt joy, feel true optimism and hope for the future, would you begin to speak that to us, even in our moments of desperation? That you give us power to live, to power to get help, power to pursue answers. And I just would say, as I'm praying to Jesus, talk to you here. If you want God's power, Jesus says, all you have to do is ask. Ask him to fill you. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. You can do that right now. you all to stand with us as we sing, singing in full faith that the name of Jesus is more powerful. Let's sing together.
As we bring our gathering to a close this morning, I just want to encourage you. It's hard to step out of what's comfortable, to step out of the insulation that so many of us have put around us thinking that I can control it or if it's just between me and God, that's enough. But bringing others into our circumstances, bringing others into what we're struggling with is the key to unlocking full freedom. And so if that's you, something in the way that you think or something moved in your heart today, totally want to encourage you to tell somebody. And there's a couple ways you can do that. One, if you want prayer and you want to let somebody know, we've got a wonderful team that'll be down front after the service in a moment. But the other thing, and found this to be true in my own life, and um, I know many of the lives of you, is that true freedom through community and accountability and authenticity is an incredible thing. And one of the ways that you can get that, one of the ways that we believe is actually one of the best ways is through group life here at Kensington, Birmingham. And so you heard Jenny earlier. She's out in the lobby um, at a table with her team. Don't leave here. Um, And that doesn't matter if you maybe have a struggle or you don't. Don't leave here without checking out what's going on with groups. I can tell you it's changed my life and so many people here's lives because of that. So we wish you, you would have a great week, and we'll hope to see you back here next week at Kensington, Birmingham. Bye, everybody.